Welcome back to this week's episode. There's a lot going on in the news, right? And in all of that going on in the news, we missed Todd and Julie Chrisley filing their appeal. So that's what we are going to talk about today. Let's take a break, talk about some pop culture, talk about what's going on in this appeal. I have I have a lot of thoughts about this one because when we saw the motion for new trial, there were legal arguments in it that I was very interested to see what the court would do and truly quite surprised that the court disregarded some of the arguments. There are some compelling arguments here for me, more than we see on most appeals. So of all the cases I've covered, this is one of the appeals that I am most interested in seeing what happens because the Chrisleys raised some good arguments. Their CPA raises some good arguments and they have tried numerous times to get out of custody pending appeal. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute as well. So let's get into breaking down this appeal in today's episode. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Can you believe it's already April? Me neither. But it's Earth Month, and today's sponsor, Green Chef, is celebrating with a collection of brand new, limited-time-only recipes. And I was getting ready to sit down and record this and went and changed some of my meal selections for the month to take advantage of these specials because they look absolutely delicious. They are also partnering with One Tree Planted to plant trees in northern Thailand to combat food insecurity, and will be planting with their partner, One Tree, for every box sold. Green Chef delivers everything you need for meals that fit your lifestyle right to your door. It's really easy to pause meals. It's easy to try it out. This month, I'm really looking forward to a couple different soups that are coming, including an udon that looks amazing. Now is the time to try Green Chef if you hadn't already. And I'm making it easy for you with this 60% off. Just go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker60 and use code emilybaker60 to get 60% off and free shipping. That's right, greenchef.com slash emilybaker60 for that 60% off. Find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Let's get back to today's episode. So technically, there are three appeals here. And if you haven't been following along with this case with Todd and Julie Chrisley and their CPA, Peter Tarantino, I'm going to give you a brief recap, but there are other podcasts and other videos on my YouTube channel that break down this case a little more fully. This case was going to trial right during the Depp v. Heard case. So I think we didn't hear as much about it in trial in federal court in Georgia last year, as we would have had this case not been going on in the middle of the largest pop culture trial that we may see for decades. No, not Gwyneth Paltrow. Debbie Heard was bigger than that and seven weeks long. So this case happened a little bit under the radar and the Chrisleys were convicted 
of numerous counts of bank fraud, tax evasion, amongst others. And because it's the federal system, sentencing takes quite a while or can take quite a while. So from that conviction on June 7th, 2022, they were sentenced in early November 2022 and then were required to turn themselves into custody in January 2023. After the conviction, they brought motions for acquittal, motions for new trial, motions for resentencing. Those motions were denied. They also appealed to the 11th Circuit Appellate Court asking that they stay their sentence, so stay them turning themselves into custody pending appeal. We sometimes see that happen. In the Jesse Smollett case, he was sentenced into custody, he turned himself in and was in custody, and then the appellate court stayed that time in custody pending his appeal. Of course, he was sentenced to a substantially shorter custody stay, and it was very likely that his entire stay in custody would be served before his appeal would be resolved. That's not the case with the Chrisleys, who were sentenced to much more time than Jesse Smollett was. And with the Chrisleys, Todd was sentenced to 12 years in federal custody, Julie to seven years, and their accountant to a substantially less three years. He was not convicted of the same number of counts that they were, and he also was fined. The restitution on the Chrisleys was very high. It's alleged that this is a $36 million fraud scheme, and the restitution reflects that with quite a large amount to be paid in restitution or forfeited from seized assets or from forfeited assets that things like we're seeing in the Genshaw case, where we're seeing all the asset forfeiture listed and seeing the substitute assets listed. So with all of that, they've made all the motions that they need to make at the lower level court to raise those arguments on appeal. We recently talked about the Tasha K and Cardi B case um, in my shorts on the QuickBits channel and on social media, where those arguments weren't preserved because those motions weren't made and you waive them on appeal. That didn't happen here. And the Chrisleys are proper and allowed to bring them on appeal. So they asked again to stay them turning themselves into custody pending appeal so they didn't have to wait in prison while their appeal is being dealt with. That was denied. They also asked for bond pending appeal. Like, hey, if you're not going to stay the sentence, at least let us stay out of custody on bond pending appeal. That was also denied. So the next step then is the appeals. We know that appeals can take a pretty good amount of time to put together. We've seen that in other cases where I'm covering appeals. And part of that is just putting together the record. In this case, the smaller part of the appeal is the CPA who's convicted of less counts. And their record is still almost 2,000 pages in one volume. So it's volumes and volumes of court records for this trial. So there's three appeals pending. Julie's appeal, Todd appeals, the CPA appeals. We're going to go mostly through Todd's appeal today because it contains the arguments that I am the most interested in and the others we're going to give an overview of and then move on. Emily, why are we saying we this whole episode? I don't know. That's just how we're rolling today. <laughs> I, have, I have such a headache that I'm just talking about myself in the third person. I don't know what's happening. It, we're just going with it for this episode and I appreciate you. So with regard to the CPA, part of his appellate argument 
is that he should not have been tried alongside the Chrisleys, that all of the evidence or a substantial amount of the evidence in trial was about the Chrisleys and what they did. And he was just a CPA doing his job, and he didn't know that in doing his job, it was facilitating the bank fraud scheme that the Chrisleys were convicted of. And trying him together with the Chrisleys substantially prejudiced his right to a fair trial because they're just lumping them all in together. So that's the basis of his appeal. Julie Chrisley is arguing that with regard to the bank fraud, there was not enough evidence presented by the government that she was a part of that bank fraud, that she had communicated with banks and had any substantial basis in dealing with the banks and then arguing errors in sentencing and that the court did not make a proper record in sentencing. With Todd's appeal, he is arguing the things that are in Julie's appeal, but also that the court failed in their rulings regarding the IRS testimony that I've previously talked about. And if you're like, what IRS testimony? Don't worry, we're going to summarize it again as I get into this appeal. But that testimony presented by an IRS agent from the government was improper testimony did not accurately state the facts and that the jury was allowed to rely on improper evidence. That also goes into the argument that there was evidence obtained by an illegal search warrant that had been ruled out. If you get, if you get evidence from an improper search warrant, all of that evidence gets kept out. And if that evidence allows or points you to other evidence, you're not allowed to use that other evidence either. It's all fruit of the poisonous tree. Law students, lawyers everywhere are going, fopped, it's fopped evidence. Yes, it's fruit of the poisonous tree evidence. So if you use a illegal or improper search warrant to get a piece of evidence, it then leads you to other pieces of evidence. All of it is tainted. So you don't get any of it because it all came from that one bad search warrant. So there's a substantial argument in Todd's appeal that the government's search warrant was improper and illegal and that they obtained a whole bunch of documents and used those documents to then get to other things. So all of that evidence should have been kept out and it wasn't. And the court needs to have more hearings. I still don't quite understand how this happened. Once it's ruled out, it doesn't come in. So allowing the government to bring it in is a huge problem for me. If there is an issue with the search warrant, the remedy is keeping the evidence out. Why? It's supposed to be a safety check, really. These checks and balances in government power, it is supposed to be a check against just writing whatever in a search warrant. Search warrants have to be based on facts. They have to be timely. They're attested to, and the things in them have to be the truth. And there should be really serious consequences when things in search warrants are not accurate. We don't want the government just being able to say whatever and get a search warrant to get into your home. It's a power that needs to operate within the checks and balance system to prevent the overreaching. And when you have an overreach and then the evidence is allowed in, there's no check and balance on that government power. So it's an interesting argument to me. I still don't quite understand how this evidence was allowed in after it was ruled out. It's very odd to me. We've seen in other cases that are going on right now in the media, a case that I am not covering um, in live streaming or really talking about is a case you might be following, the um, Vallow Daybell case. It's a criminal case out of Idaho. It is a truly horrific and gruesome case. 
But in that case, there were government violations in discovery that caused the judge to pull the death penalty off the table for one of the defendants, because that is a sanction against the government doing things they're not supposed to do. So that's what Todd Chrisley is arguing here. This should never have come in. And what does a trial look like? Issues with search warrants are one of those things that an appellate court will order a new trial over. And then this IRS argument is very, very interesting to me. Because if you have evidence that a witness misstated things on the stand or intentionally lied on the stand, and then that wasn't corrected in front of the jury, it couldn't be cross-examined in front of the jury, then you have a big problem. Generally, the remedy is that you're allowed to impeach that witness saying, no, this isn't true, and here's why. It seems that the Chrisleys got the information after the fact. And again, with a criminal conviction, particularly once the shit's out of the horse, it's really hard to fix it short of a new trial because the jury's already heard it. And a lot of lawyers will say you can't unring the bell. And it's true. Once the jurors have heard it, it's hard to then pull it out of their mind. It isn't MIB. There's no little like flashy thing where you just get to take it out of their brains. We're humans. And once you hear something and then you're told to ignore the something that you've heard, how well does that go? Right? It's like me trying to tell my teen, ignore those books that the law nerds sent to me. You don't need to know what those titles are. Leave them alone. It makes them all the more interesting. If you have no idea what I'm talking about with that reference, um, it's probably for the best. So with all of that summation, I am going to pull up the appeal for Todd Chrisley, and we're going to look at those two arguments and then the assignments of error. And if you are interested in diving even deeper into the other appeals in this case, let me know. And when the government responses come in, we'll take a closer look at all three of the appeals together. So you need to let me know in the comments on social media. And of course, in your reviews of the podcast, the five-star reviews are like, Emily, of course we want more. And did you know we're on iHeartRadio now? So if you are listening on iHeartRadio, let me know, leave me a review. With all of that, we're going to take a minute to thank our sponsor and then pull up this appeal. I'm really excited to introduce to you our next sponsor, Lomi. I first heard about Lomi when Dr. B came to me and was like, M, I have found the thing. You are going to absolutely love it. And he is right. We've had one in our house for like eight months now and have absolutely loved using it. So when they reached out to sponsor the show, I was like, oh my God, we love Lomi. Lomi is a fantastic way to turn your food waste into dirt for your yard, your garden, your plants. It's absolutely easy to do. And it has reduced our food waste, which in turn has reduced how bad our garbage cans smell. And that is a very big deal at our household. With feeding kids, there are times where food is just not going to get eaten. And sometimes I do overpurchase microgreens at the farmer's market. It is a toxic trait. But I don't feel bad because I know that that food waste is going to get a second life by using my Lomi to turn it into nourishing dirt for my yard and garden. And not only that, but it does it in like four hours. So you don't have to wait for days and days and days. It's quiet. It runs with no smell. So if you are ready to make an impact, throw out less food waste, 
and nourish your yard or garden, head to Lomi.com slash Lawnard and use code Lawnard to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash Lawnard and use promo code Lawnard at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you a trip out to the garbage can. So this is Todd Chrisley's opening brief to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. This was a federal trial in Georgia. So this is the circuit that you appeal to. This was filed on March 29th. So we're not that far behind. (laughs) There's a very extensive certificate of interested persons and corporate disclosure statements that's attached with this, including Julie Chrisley, Todd Chrisley, um, and then a whole bunch of other parties. A lot of them are banks. The um, appellate requests oral argument in this case because it involves complex legal and factual issues. If there is oral argument, oftentimes there will be audio of that. So if this gets scheduled for oral argument, I will absolutely cover it if you are interested. That's not true. I will cover it either way because I'm very interested. I'm just hoping that you are also interested. So as we go through this, we're going to take a look first at the assignments of errors. You might be familiar with that language from the Deputy Heard Appeals that I covered. So their statement of the issues. The defendant raises the following issues on appeal. One, whether the district court abused its discretion when it refused to hold a hearing on the defendant's Jiglio claims, specifically that the prosecutors knowingly presented and failed to correct false testimony from IRS Revenue Officer Betty Carter, who lied about the defendants owing taxes for years when she knew no taxes were due. Two, whether the defendants' Fourth Amendment rights were violated when the district court admitted volumes of excluded evidence at trial without requiring the government to prove it obtained the evidence through a source independent of its unlawful search. and Three, whether the government offered sufficient evidence at trial to convict for tax evasion and conspiracy counts eight and nine, when it proved only that the defendant lawfully received his acting income through a loan out company, which is standard in the industry and did not alter or conceal his tax liability in any way. We're not going to get to point three today. I am most interested in points one and two, but as the court rules on these things, we will follow them. This is a criminal case involving allegations of bank fraud and tax evasion against reality television personalities Todd and Julie Chrisley, footnote one. Todd appeals his convictions based on significant trial and post-trial errors, as well as insufficient evidence of tax evasion. On August 13, 2019, a federal grand jury indicted Todd and Julie Chrisley for bank fraud, wire fraud, tax evasion, and various counts of conspiracy. The indictment also charged their accountant, Peter Tarantino, with tax crimes. Two and a half years later, on February 15th, 2022, the grand jury issued a superseding indictment. The new indictment charged Todd with one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud, five counts of substantive bank fraud, and one count of conspiracy to defraud the United States, and one count of tax evasion. Prior to trial, the Chrisleys filed two motions to suppress evidence. Following an evidentiary hearing, the magistrate judge recommended that the district court deny one but grant the other. The government did not object to these recommendations, and the district court adopted them in their entirety, docket 127. Prior to trial, after a dispute between the parties about the scope of the district court's order, the Chrisleys filed a motion to require the government to establish the admissibility of any evidence previously suppressed by prior motions 
before their introduction at trial. The district court denied the motion in a brief paragraph of a longer order. Trial began on May 16th and ended June 7th. At the close of trial, the jury found Todd Chrisley guilty on all counts. Following the jury's verdict, the Chrisleys filed joint motions for new trial and judgments of acquittal. The trial court summarily denied the motions without explanation, promising to do so later. Shortly after the district court denied their motions, the Chrisleys moved for reconsideration, identifying new evidence of their claims that they received three days after the court ruled. The district court took no action on the motion nor provided its reason for denying the other post-trial motions before this appeal began. Normally, you'll see a more extensive order when denying these types of motions. So it's interesting to me that that was not the case here. On November 21st, 2022, the district court sentenced Todd to 144 months of imprisonment and three years supervised release. The court entered judgment on December 5th. That same day, Todd filed his notice of appeal. More than a month later, the district court issued an order stating its reasons for denying the post-trial motions. Their statement of facts is as follows. The Chrisley's statement of facts is as follows. In the superseding indictment, Todd and Julie were charged with tax evasion and bank fraud, and Julie was also charged with wire fraud and obstruction of justice. For the bank fraud charges, the government alleged that the Chrisley's sent fraudulent documents to various banks to obtain or extend loans. The government's bank fraud case rested largely on the testimony of the Chrisley's former business partner, Mark Braddock, who was granted immunity for testifying that he facilitated the fraud. The primary defense to the fraud charges was that Braddock committed the crimes without the couple's knowledge. Facts relevant to the Giglio or Giglio violation. To make its case, the government relied heavily on the testimony of IRS officer Betty Carter. Officer Carter was the first IRS investigator involved in the matter. The government needed her testimony to establish an important aspect of the Chrisley's criminal intent. And without intent, you don't have these crimes. Specifically, that their use of a loan-out company was done for the purpose of evading taxes. Speaking of loan-out companies, it is commonly done in the industry, very commonly done, where you don't hire Jennifer Aniston. You hire Jennifer Aniston's loan-out company, and Jennifer Aniston is an employee of that company. So you pay the company, and the company then later pays Jennifer Aniston. It is absolutely the way that people are hired across a variety of industries where you work with talent. Officer Carter, this goes on to state, testified at length on the first and second days of trial. At that time, she testified that she prepared for her testimony by examining the relevant tax payment records in the IRS's internal system. Specifically, she said that she reviewed the IRS's, quote, integrated data system, which, quote, shows returns that are filed, taxes that are due, payments that are made, basically the activity on the money side of the account end quote. It goes on to say, purportedly based on her review of these records, Officer Carter testified that the Chrisleys failed to pay taxes for various years and still owed the IRS money for these years. For example, she said that based on her review of the records, which she claimed she completed the morning before her testimony, the Chrisleys still owed taxes for 2010 and 2014. Officer Carter also testified on cross-examination that the Chrisleys owed money for 2015 and 2016. While she could not recall the exact amount, she told defense counsel she would let them know what it was. That didn't happen. Officer Carter did not contact defense counsel with these alleged balances during the trial. Instead, after the government had obtained its convictions, she contacted the Chrisley's accountant and admitted that the couple did not owe the IRS the money she claimed at trial that they did. 
this is a big problem for me. This remains a big problem for me. This remains a big problem for me. Officer Carter told the accountant that the Chrisleys were current on their taxes for 2014, 2015, and 2016, but the IRS had failed to apply the payments to their account. In later emails with the accountant, Officer Carter confirmed that the IRS's system showed that the Chrisleys had made payments for 2014, 15, 16 that exceeded the amounts owed for these years. Yet her testimony left the misimpression that the Chrisleys still owed substantial sums to the IRS when, in fact, the IRS had been failing to apply payments that the Chrisleys previously made. When I tell you that it is for certain that the IRS will get their money, it does not mean that you still won't end up on the shit end of the stick with the IRS. And let this be an example to you to, A, keep diligent records, and B, stay on top of stuff with the IRS and C, hire professionals, which the Chrisleys seem to have done. But the IRS still testified at their trial that they owed money because the IRS hadn't applied their payments to the accounts. I'll be interested to see the response to this because the response in the other motion, well, well, you know, the payments were made under this social security number and not that social security number. And this one was the main one on the account, not that one. (sighs) But the IRS can criminally charge you. So shouldn't their system be able to cross-reference it at least some? It goes on to argue, all told, the IRS owed the Chrisleys substantial refunds, not the other way around. Notably, at no time during or after the trial did Officer Carter or the prosecutors attempt to correct the record on these questions. Based on Officer Carter's false testimony and the government's failure to correct it, the Chrisleys jointly raised a Jiglio claim in their motion for new trial and requested an evidentiary hearing. The government's response admitted, albeit in a footnote, that the prosecution team knew during the trial that Officer Carter's testimony was false and that they did nothing to correct it. Document 292 at 8, footnote N, uh, no, footnote 4. Even in the face of these admissions, the district court declined to hold a hearing. It summarily denied the new trial motion in one paragraph of a brief order without stating any reasons. Three days after the court ruled, the Chrisleys received documents in response to a records request to the IRS that they had made many months prior. These records, internal IRS audit trails, substantiated the Chrisleys' Jiglio claims and refuted the government's assertion that Officer Carter's false testimony was unintentional and that the prosecutors were unaware of the payments. Based in part on this evidence, the Chrisleys filed a motion for reconsideration The renewed motion alleged, among other things, that the prosecutors and Officer Carter had planned to mislead the jury and the court by basing Officer Carter's testimony about the tax payments on an IRS database that they knew to be incorrect. That's a huge allegation. And if that was done, that is a huge problem of overreaching and illegal behavior by the government. The Chrisley's motion provided factual support through affidavits and is largely corroborated by the government's explicit and implicit admissions in its response to the new trial motion. In relevant part, the renewed new trial motion alleged, and this is their recitation of that, shortly after the criminal investigation began in 2018, the prosecutors at trial, AUSAs, Peters, and Krepp, knew that the defendants had paid their tax liability for at least 2014 and 2015. They did not want the jury to know this information. So shortly before the trial, they filed a motion in limine to exclude any evidence of the payments. When AUSA Peters and Krepp prepared 
the motion in limine to exclude evidence of the payments, they appeared to ask one of the IRS criminal investigators to review what payments might be at issue. That agent looked at the Chrisley tax records, which contained these payments. After filing the motion in limine, AUSA's Peters and Krep filed a quote-unquote notice about it with the court. In this pleading filed a week before the testimony, the prosecutors acknowledged that they were aware that Todd and Julie Chrisley filed amended tax returns and paid off their tax liabilities after February 2018. The court denied the government's motion in limine on May 10th, 2022. As a result, AUSA Peters and Krep knew that the defendant's tax payments from 2018 to the present in the so-called, quote, post-conspiracy period would be admissible in trial and were likely to be introduced by the defendants in their case. A few days later, the AUSAs met with Officer Carter to prepare her for her testimony. During that meeting, both prosecutors and Officer Carter knew that the defendants made the necessary payments to extinguish much, if not all, of their tax liability for all tax years before trial. Which, just sidebar real quick, the government can still argue at trial, look, the only reason they paid these off now is because they got caught. Like, there's still room to argue that the Chrisleys didn't do what the government thought they should have done. And there are ways to argue that lawfully. What you can't do is present evidence that they're not paid when you know that they are. That is improper testimony. That falls into the realm potentially, and I use potentially as a big word because I tread lightly here, potentially of perjury. If you know something is false and you testify on the stand that it's true, it is a huge problem. It goes on to say, consistent with their motions in limine, the AUSAs did not want to leave the jury with the impression that the defendants had paid their outstanding tax liability. I think that's reaching into the minds of the AUSAs a little much, but it's fair argument. They go on to say, based on all of this, it appears that at some point in their trial prep conversations, the AUSAs and Officer Carter discussed the fact that the IRS Employee User Portal, EUP, failed to reflect the payments the defendants had made after 2018 and incorrectly showed outstanding tax balances. But the prosecutors and Officer Carter knew from their prior conversations and the extensive research of the Chrisley's tax records that the balances reflected in the EUP were incorrect. Nevertheless, the AUSAs told Officer Carter that she could rely upon the IRS account transcripts from EUP rather than the other knowledge she possessed from her review of the defendant's tax records, which showed conclusively that the payments made exceeded the balances that the EUP incorrectly claimed were due. To be clear, the AUSAs told Officer Carter her testimony would be, quote, truthful and accurate, end quote, so long as she testified to what the EUP database reflected regarding the untimely filed 2014-15-16 joint returns for the Chrisley defendants. And this is what Officer Carter tried to do, testifying on cross-examination that the defendants owed taxes for at least 2014 and 15, and she did so even though she knew that her answers were misleading. She knew from her hundreds of searches through the defendants' tax records that they had made payments in excess of what the EUP incorrectly said they owed. After cross-examination by defense counsel, when Officer Carter lied about the defendant's outstanding tax liability, AUSA Krep returned to the issue in his redirect examination of her. The following exchange occurred, and I am going to read the exchange um, that they have cited in their appeal. Question. 
Now, you also said something about you checked yesterday morning, and I believe there was a back and forth about what you were checking and all of that. I want to give you an opportunity to complete your thoughts on that answer. And this would be the IRS agent answering. Yes, I just went and checked on all outstanding balances, and there are additional tax and penalties owed. Question to this day, answer yes. They go on to say this testimony was intentionally misleading as detailed above. And both AUSA, Krep, and Officer Carter knew that it was. The testimony was intended to reinforce the false testimony that Officer Carter had provided the day before during cross-examination about at least the 2014 and 15 tax years. And it was also false because Officer Carter had not, quote, checked on all outstanding balances as she claimed. They say that the AUSA's motive for returning to the issue and asking the question on redirect was clear. He wanted to undermine any argument that the defendants might have had about demonstrating their lack of intent by showing that they had fully paid their tax obligations. And again, the AUSAs could have still argued intent by saying they only paid it after they got indicted. If those are the facts, they can argue that. They say when the defendants presented evidence of the tax payments in their case. So again, this was presented by the defense which began, and they're talking about the testimony, which began on June 1st, 2022, AUSAs did not contest it because they knew the defendants had made the payments at issue. We know this not only from their conversations with Officer Carter and her MOI, as documented above, but also because Agent Kinsler called the prosecutors on the morning of June 1st to raise the issue again. At no time during trial, even after Agent uh, Kinsler flagged the issue for them, did the AUSAs comply with their Jiglio obligations and notify the court about Officer Carter's false testimony or attempt to correct it. They then go on to say that more than a month after losing jurisdiction over the substantive issues in this appeal, the district court issued a 78-page order to, quote, set forth the, quote, reasoning and analysis, quote, for its decision to deny all post-trial motions nearly three months prior. We haven't covered that yet. Let me know if you would like to. The order did not address the district court's jurisdiction or grounds for issuing a substantive decision while this appeal was pending. Instead of stating, for the reasons described in the order, the trial was adhering to the ruling set forth in the prior order. On its own terms, the district court's order contained multiple factual errors. As an initial matter, in the order, the court found that the Chrisleys owed taxes that even the government did not claim were due. The government has acknowledged that much of Officer Carter's testimony about the taxes was mistaken. And its sole written response to the new trial motion did not assert that the Chrisleys really owed taxes for 2009 through 2016, footnote four. It made other arguments instead. Footnote four says the government did claim that the Chrisleys still owed a residual balance from 2016, but the Chrisleys dispute this claim. They go on to say against this backdrop, the trial court's findings were head-scratching. It concluded that the Chrisleys owed taxes for 2010, 11, and 16, and that they, quote, might even have owed for 14 and 15. It reached these conclusions not based off of the party's arguments, but only because Officer Carter's affidavit said that she provided, quote, payoff amounts to the Chrisleys' accountant after trial, and that their accountant sent checks for those amounts. The court assumed, despite witness statements and arguments to the contrary, that these post-trial payments amounted to an admission that money was owed. They did not. 
The post-trial payments were meant to help the IRS clean up existing balances in their system so that the Chrisley's outstanding tax credit could be applied to the larger sums going forward. This is why Officer Carter's affidavit references outstanding credit balances. Y'all. It goes on to say the district court speculation is even more confounding because its order also acknowledges elsewhere that Officer Carter's testimony about 2014 and 15 was false. In other places, it concluded her testimony was an unintentional error. In doing so, the court assumed that Officer Carter's testimony was, quote, reasonably based on, quote, information she accessed via the IRS's internal EUP system. The court did not explain why it disregarded the defendant's expert's affidavit that the IRS audit trails showed that Officer Carter knew the payments had been made contrary to what anything in the system might have said. Using this example showed the district court simply assumed the government's witness was right and that the Chrisley's accountant was wrong. Even more bizarrely, the court speculated that the Chrisley's may have owed taxes for 14 and 15. Again, this is not a theory the government ever advanced. For those years, the government admitted that the Chrisley's paid the balances due for 14 and 15, but claimed that the IRS database did not recognize the payments. So if the court doesn't know the facts of the trial after the trial, we have a really big problem. It goes on to say, yet even in the face of this admission, the court theorized that, quote, even if the Chrisley defendants had zero balances for the tax years of 14 and 15 at times prior to May 2022, this does not necessarily mean that their balances were zero as of May 2022 when the trial occurred. What this appears to mean is that even though the Chrisleys paid off their taxes for 14 and 15 before trial, there's no argument that they owe them now. The district court believed it was possible that they might have owed them during the small window of time when the trial took place, which would have made Officer Carter's testimony true. There is zero evidence in the record to support the court's conjecture. On appeal, this court reviews the district court's denial of new trial motion, asserting a Jiglio claim for abuse of discretion. The same standard applies to the question whether the district court erred by denying the motion without first conducting an evidentiary hearing, which is a lot of what they're asking for in this case is an evidentiary hearing. So for those of you asking, okay, Emily, we've gone over Jiglio a couple times. What in the world does it mean? You might also be familiar with Brady versus Maryland. This is Jiglio versus the United States. Both cases stand for similar but different propositions. The Brady case came first about the government having to turn over evidence, particularly exculpatory evidence, to a defendant. So the prosecution team is what has determined the prosecution. So even if the prosecutor doesn't have it in their hands or their databases, if it's a police officer witness or a government agent witness like the IRS would be, if they have that exculpatory evidence, somewhere they have to turn it over. This is the case even if the prosecutor is not aware that it exists. It is one of the biggest obligations that the prosecution holds to uphold the constitutional rights of a defendant is you have to seek it out and turn it over. And even if you don't know about it, it is still your obligation to turn it over. And even if you never know about it and it comes up later, you are still the person who is in trouble. With regard to Jiglio, it extends that Brady case, saying that the government has to turn over evidence even if it comes up after the trial. And in that case, evidence came up after the trial that the prosecution had not disclosed to the defense, and it required a new trial under the rules of due process. 
Due process is a constitutional right. Even if stuff comes up after trial, the prosecution is obligated to bring it to the court. And oftentimes that will require a new trial. And that is the due process violation with regard to the IRS testimony that's being argued here by Todd Chrisley. We're going to look real quick at Todd Chrisley's other argument with regard to the search warrant. The brief goes on to say that the court erred when it admitted evidence in violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Jiglio violation is not the only error that requires a new trial. At the government's insistence, the district court admitted substantial volumes of evidence at trial that were obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment, even though the evidence had been suppressed by a prior ruling that the government did not appeal. Specifically, the court admitted copies of documents illegally seized from the Chrisley's warehouse and other evidence derived from the unlawful warehouse search. When it did so, the court did not require the government to make any showing that this evidence qualified for an exception to the exclusionary rule that would permit its admission. This was an error. The facts already in the record established that nearly all the investigative steps federal agents took after March 2017 were prompted by what it found in the illegal search. As a result, much of the evidence the government collected should have been inadmissible at trial, but prosecutors sought to admit some of it anyway. And when the Chrisleys raised the issue, the district court declined to decide the question on its merits. The effect of the court's procedural ruling was to permit the government to introduce fruits of the illegal warehouse search fruits of the poisonous tree without showing that they met an exception to the exclusionary rule. Under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, Emily, keep reading. Evidence later found in a subsequent search should be suppressed if the search warrant was prompted by what investigators found in the prior unconstitutional search. These two arguments by Todd Chrisley are the type of arguments that if you are going to see an appeal that results in a new trial, these are in that realm. You have a criminal trial and you have two alleged constitutional violations, the type of which if a court is going to overturn a conviction, these are the types of reasons why. This is not things that are going to be like, yeah, it might be an error, but that might be a harmless error, which happens on appeal. You can win an appeal where they're like, yes, the court erred, but that error was harmless and nothing's going to happen. If you have this Jiglio violation, if you have a Fourth Amendment violation, most appellate courts are not going to find those to be harmless errors. Those are going to be the type of errors that grant a new trial. Whether a new trial would be pursued against the Chrisleys, whether it would be in front of a different court or a different judge, all of those things are very far down the line. And the Chrisleys are going to have to continue to serve their time in prison and pay the substantial sums of money that it takes to continue to fight this. But the Chrisleys have been fighting on these grounds for a substantial amount of time uh, and properly fought the search warrant and got evidence excluded that then found its way into trial, which is confounding to me. I am very interested in this appeal, not only because it is a reality show family who so many of you have affinity for, but because we're also dealing with really important questions of law, of equity, and of what happens if this is you. What happens if the IRS is pursuing you and they're like, you didn't pay? And you're like, no, but I did. And they're like, oh, we didn't see it in our system. How much money are you going to have to pay to fight or fix that error? 
And that is what's going on in this case. The Chrisleys have the money to pay it. But what about all of those who don't? So we are going to continue looking at this case. I am going to continue following this appeal because I am very curious, not only what the government's response will be, but what this appellate court will do. Let me know if you're interested in this. Let me know what questions you have. And if we want to go back and take a look at what the court ruled that the Chrisleys are now arguing to the appellate court, we will deep dive into this more. We've touched on these arguments before, but we have not done a full deep dive into the government's response, what they admitted, what they denied, the court's response three months later. So there's a lot more to get into here. And I want to know if you're interested. And with that, thank you for being here for another episode. Thank you for being a law nerd. And I hope that April is treating you well. I can't believe it's April. My favorite branded April Fool's post was the Calm app, which I love. Um, Hashtag not sponsored, but should be. The Calm app that I love posted about Calm Airlines. If you're on their social media accounts, go take a look. Leave a purple heart. But posted about Calm Airlines and it looked so delightful. I'm like, I want this to be real so badly. Please build me a Calm Airlines where everything looks like a zen sweet in the air. It just looked so delicious and I want it to be real. So let's make it happen. Lawnerts, we need it. Please make it be true. So with all of that, say it with me. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your Easter eggs get hidden in your yard, not be ravaged by wild animals. Yes, I'm speaking from personal experience. It's happened more than once and I should have learned by now, but I haven't. This year we're keeping them all inside. May your families be well and may the odds be ever in your favor. I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the QuickBits podcast and QuickBits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Law Nerd. <laughs>